podcast. I'm speaking today with Carl Morris. Carla is a PGA member in the UK and also a highly renowned performance coach, especially with players on the men's European tour. Carl has coached, mentally coached, uh, Graham McDowell, who is the 2010 US Open winner, Louis Oosthuizen, the Open winner in 2010, and Darren Clark, who won the Open in 2011. Carl, that's two pretty good years for your performance coaching. Uh, absolutely, Peter. It's, uh, it's great to have the opportunity to, to chat with you and uh, you know, maybe share some of the thoughts that uh, these players have passed on to me, really, over the years. I mean, I remember one guy saying to me the, many years ago, the secret of success is make sure you work with good players. So I've been fortunate in that respect. Oh, well, I'm sure you didn't, uh, you didn't have to convince them to work. Carl, I'm very familiar with your work. You were in Australia for a series around Australia and also for the National Australian PGA Coaching Summit. Um, I know I took pages of notes. I've enjoyed the chats that we've had over the, the ensuing years. I, you know, I watch with you know, admiration at what you've done in growing the, the mind factor, um, all of the resources that you've developed, the great CDs, and now you're, you're actually coaching other coaches to teach along the same lines as you. Yeah, that's probably the biggest passion, really, Peter. I mean, the, I think if I think back to my own playing days, that I struggled because I could never take the, what technical ability I had on the range onto the, onto the golf course. And there was a kind of gap between the coaching in those days and, and then maybe going and seeing a, a kind of academic sports psychologist or somebody who was a sort of general psychologist. And, and, I, and, I, and I really feel the opportunity is there for, for great coaches to have a blend of technical and physical know-how so that, you know, the player has a complete package, really, and, and who better to deliver that than a PGA professional? Absolutely, because you you understand what the uh, what they're going through. Yeah, you, you know, you, I don't think they have to have played at the very highest level, but I think it's certainly an advantage to have played to, to some degree and, and, and to understand some of the things that these guys are going through when, when they're struggling with the form, when they're struggling at a particular time in, in, in their own. And, you know, golf, golf does bring a unique set of challenges to it. And, uh, you know, I, I, think, I think to understand the mind and the game is a, is a, is a, is a big sort of area of development. Was that the thing that attracted you, the fact that you'd, you'd played and you realised that there were gaps in, uh, in your own mental performance? Yeah, I think, I think my inspiration was my own failure, really. I was, there was always a different player from, from, the, from the guy who practiced to the one who went on the, on, on the golf course. And uh, I've been searched for technical um, expertise and uh, a swing that wouldn't break down for a number of years and couldn't seem to find it anywhere. I realized that there was you know, an opportunity to study a little bit more about how thought processes were getting in the way and how the mind was influencing uh, what, what, what I was doing and, and I think in the last 10 years there's been so many, so many sort of leaps forward in, in our understanding and, and I think golf instruction is now becoming much more brain compatible that there's, there's an understanding much more about the learning process but I think we need to keep going with that and, and think people, coaches like yourself who keep pushing the boundaries and asking, asking good questions I think uh, you know that's one of my mantras really that it's it's not so much about positive thinking as positive questions. If you ask some very good questions, you're going to move your brain in the right direction. Absolutely. There's a lot of world-class players that you have worked with, and they're all striving to you know, continually improve what they're doing. What are the traits that you see in the, the best of players? 
everybody's slightly different, but uh, I think you, you, you do see in the great players, uh, first of all, a tenacity. There's a tenacity want to, to want to get better. There's a, a desire to play the game. If I think of somebody like Darren Clark, who I've known best part of 12, 13 years, that you know, by his own admission, Darren would say he's, he's addicted to golf. He, he still loves the game. I mean, the biggest misconception about about Darren Clark is that he doesn't practice enough. Probably the probably the biggest thing that he does is practice too much, maybe in the wrong way. And you know, he, he's, he's become more aware of these things over over the years. But you know, McDowell would be another example of somebody who's just very very tenacious. He you know, it's we have the kind of mantra find a way, and he'll find a way of getting the ball around the golf course and. A lot of people say to me that, you know, he's one of the players that they admire because he, he hasn't got the, the prettiest looking technique. He's got some some limitations in, in possibly in the way he controls the ball and the ball flight. He's always fighting a certain kind of shot. But he's got an incredible ability to get the ball around the golf course and, and also to thrive on pressure. You know, he everything he does is about getting into those situations that some people would be scared of, and he he comes alive in those situations. He just loves that opportunity to 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 test himself against the best. And for a lot of players, as you rightly mentioned, they actually become fearful to the point where it really inhibits their ability to perform in those situations. Uh, so, what are the what are the types of ways that you would go about? Helping people like that blueprint that we that we have doubts in our brain. You know, we we, we survived as a result of doubt because in mm. the years when survival depended on you came out of your cave every morning and you know you either found lunch or you became lunch, and you know and you had to have doubts about your environment. So that's kind of wired into us. So, so so doubt doesn't ever disappear. I don't think because one of the things that I've found from the greatest players is that they still have these doubts knocking on the mind. What I have found is that you can have doubt, but you can also then still decide where to put your attention. Mm. An attention would be the the number one thing that I would work on with any player in any sport. And and I have a very simple rule, you know, with your attention. Your your attention is either in a useful place or a useless place. Mm depending on what your task is. Whatever the task is that you have in front of you, what is your attention on? So even though there may be doubt in the background, you can still decide to put your attention on, for instance, your routine prior to walking into the shot. You can still decide to put your attention on being committed. Hmm. So the, the, the great thing that we have as human beings is the choice of deciding where to put our attention it, it, it doesn't mean that negativity will disappear. It doesn't mean that doubt will disappear. But we can learn to live with it and, can, and, and work through those, those negative thoughts. So it's, it's placing your attention wherever it needs to be in spite of whatever else is going on. In spite of whatever. You know, I think a lot of club golfers have the misapprehension that great players go out there and they never feel nervous and, and, they, and they've got... You know, all these bulletproof minds that never let a negative thought come in there, and they couldn't be further from the truth. You know, I remember going back to 2008 with Graham McDowell. He started off the year pretty well. He won the, he won the Korean Open, I think it was, the Ballantines. And then he had the opportunity to win the Scottish Open at Loch Lomond. And it was the first tournament that he had a significant lead going into the last four or five holes where he had a chance to win. And I remember him telling me afterwards, he said he stood on the, I think it was the 15th tee, or he, was, or he was walking up to the 15th tee, 
And he said the only thoughts that he had in his mind as he was walking up the 15th tee was that he was going to top, top the ball literally off the end of the tee. He said from, from nowhere these thoughts just appeared into his head. And then he, he looked at me and he said, he said, and then he said, it really dawned on me what our work had been over the years. He said, because, and he, and he made this sort of grabbing motion like this. He said, he said, the routines that we have put in place became a rope that I could hang on to mm. when all the chaos was going on around me. So, you know, in spite of those thoughts of topping it off the end of the, end of the tee, he, he decided to put his attention on his routine. You know, that's, that's a great play of thinking he's going to top it when he's playing the best golf of his life. So, you know, expect some bad thoughts out on the golf course, but you can still fun- function with them. That's a nice story because even for other professional golfers who listen, but particularly for the club golfers, they're going to say, well, you know, if it's okay with him, then, you know, why do I set my metal goals so high and try not to be nervous and try not to have negative thoughts and all those sorts of things? You see, there's a great point, Peter, that because a lot of people, I think, they fall into the trap of thinking, I've got to think positive. I've got to think positive. And the problem with that for a lot of people is the more you try and think positively, the more you're actually suppressing the negativity. And if things don't turn out as you want them to, the negativity just tends to explode in your face. I I tend to work more with what I call neutral thinking, whereby it's much more an acceptance that from day to day some bad thoughts will come into your head, but you can still choose to put your attention on appropriate things to the task. My my view is you're working towards a more of a a calm mind rather than a positive mind. Mm. You know, a positive mind is still lots of thinking. The one word I always get repeated back to me when people talk about peak performance is that the mind is very calm Mm. and the mind is very still and it's just focused appropriately. Most of the time, the best players, when they, when they are performing really well, if they're asked, you know, what did you think about? You know, why did you play so well? And their response is often, I wasn't thinking about anything. Yeah, yeah. I was so absorbed. You know, there's a great video on YouTube from, I think it was about 2000 with Tiger Woods. I think the title is Tiger in the Zone or something like that. And, and Woods describes about how when he's playing his best, he almost hasn't got the verbal description to, 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 to describe what was go, what's going on. He, and he talks about being so absorbed in the task, so absorbed in this moment, in this particular shot, that, that he almost, he talks about getting these blackout moments where he doesn't even remember what, what actually happened mm. because he is, he has, he is absorbed in that task. So if we go right back to the players that, um, well, certainly that I would deal with most of the time, they're going to be club golfers. They're across the board, but majority of them are going to be club golfers. What are the first steps that, that you would advise them to take or that you take with them when they say, I need to do something about my mental game? I know, I know that's a big question, but it, it's going to come back to something, usually come, something like, I, I don't have enough confidence when I'm playing in my game. First of all, Peter, the, the, the one thing I always say to, say to people, and, and it's a question that, that came from Fred Shoemaker, who had a big influence on me. Um, Fred said one of the most important questions is, is what is, to an individual is why do you play golf? Mm-hmm. You know, why do you actually play? And, and he, he said, you know, never take the first answer because the first answer is very often what they think they should say. But, but keep asking the question, why, why do you actually play? What do you want to do all of this thing for? You know, and, and I think if somebody's very clear on, on, on what they want, then you can build a program around that. You know, if, if somebody says, you know, why do I play golf? Well, 
I, I, I love I love competition, and, and, and you know, and I really want to improve. Well, you, you can build a program around that. You, you know, some people they, they, they don't really have enough clarity of, of why they are doing this thing called golf. I, I think probably the biggest factor that holds people back in golf is that they practice inappropriately. They, they practice in a way that bears no resemblance to the real game. But, having said that, I've had certain players over the years who are busy businessmen, they're not really that bothered about getting their handicap down, they, they don't play that much golf, but you know what, they love, they love hitting balls for an hour at the range to just clear their mind, and they're obsessed with technique, and that's all they're interested in. And, and you know, if they're clear on that, and that's what they want from the game, well, there's nothing wrong with that. Give yourself permission to do it. But if your goal is to become a golfer who can score better and get the ball around the course in less shots, while standing on a range thinking about technique every day for two hours is probably not the best route to do it. And, and I think that question of, you know, or the answer to the question, why do you play golf, evolves over time because the majority of people come into golf because a parent plays, a friend plays, or... Yeah a spouse, a boyfriend, a girlfriend or something like that plays, but then that can't be the central reason why they continue to play. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think sometimes it is connecting people back to some of the right reasons that they play golf. Mm. You know, if, if we started as kids, we, we, we just loved the opportunity of hitting a golf ball to a target. And we like being out there and, and the competition with our friends and, being out in the open and things like that. And sometimes with the very best players, it's actually reminding them and getting them back to what, to why they play the game in, in the first place. You, you know, I think that the higher up that they go, so often the biggest challenge is, is there's so many opportunities financially and contractually and all that that they actually forget the reasons why they played the game in the first place. Mm. Mm. And then they find that they, uh, they find it more of a chore. Yeah. But, you know, getting back to your question about the club golfer, I would say, for me, the big key would be to have a good blend. Um, I'm a passionate believer in, in taking quality instruction in terms of understanding what you need to do to improve your mechanics, if that's appropriate. But then, then have a very, very clear understanding of how, when you practice, that you, you, your brain is a, what I call a contextual machine in so much that when you are in a certain context, your brain will behave in a certain way, dependent on that context. So a guy who's an accountant sat in, a, in, a, in an office is not going to be the same guy who goes and stands on a, on a football terrace mm. because the context creates different behaviour in his brain. The context of practice ground for golf is as far removed from the context called golf course mm. as it possibly can be in any sport. I think we have the biggest disparity between where we practice and where we play than in anything else, than in any other sport that I've ever, ever worked in. One of the things as coaches that we're always trying to do, mimic the conditions in competition as closely as we can on, you know, on a range or on a practice area. And you can do that to some extent. They're still playing the same shots, but it's nothing like it. It's nothing like the same. Do you know, as crazy as it sounds, Peter, some players, the, the, the single biggest breakthrough that I've had with certain players over the years, they've kind of come to me, you know, as you can imagine, very often I'm the last port of call, really, they're at the desperate stage, which is, which is but, but very often, a, a, a number of times over the years, I've, I've actually banned golfers from practicing, 
I'd say, well, you've tried everything else, you've tried everything you possibly can, you've been working on this swing for 10 years. Right, let's, let's experiment for six weeks that you do not hit a single practice ball, mm. but you play as much golf as possible. You get out on the golf course, and if you've got an hour, you go and play three holes, you go and play five holes, you go and play 36 holes in a day if you, if you possibly can. And, and nine times out of ten at first, they'll say, oh, well, I'm really struggling, and it's, I'm still not getting it. And then all of a sudden, they start to find a way of getting the ball around the golf course. They start to find a way of being comfortable in that environment. Mm. You know, it, it sounds so obvious, but that would be one of the, the big keys to you know, everybody listening to this is play golf. You play golf on a golf course. You know, and I think we've missed the point that we can practice on a golf course as well. I, I love getting players playing things like worst ball. Mm. You know, get out there on your own and play worst ball with a card in your hand. Play things like deliberate miss. Play nine holes where you deliberately miss every 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 green with your approach shot and see what score you can you can still come up with. You know, cr- create practice games on the golf course in the context called golf. A lot of people, when they think about uh, playing golf, they sort of do practice, but they don't practice like that. They're, no. Every time they're on the golf course, they're thinking about my golf swing and everything. Yeah. You know, everything comes back to the error with the golf shot. I mean, as, as coaches, we know that you can explain away any ball flight, any shot that's hit from a technical perspective. The club was doing this, you were doing that, but the underlying reason may have nothing to do with that. And, yeah, I know you've written a book recently, Peter. I'm, I'm just about to, to publish a, a book myself, and um, the heart of the book is what I call the, the, the three phases of golf. And the three phases of golf for me would be the first phase is the, is the pre-shot, what you do before you step into the shot. Mm-hmm. The second phase is the actual shot bit, when your body moves and you make contact with it. And the third phase is the post-shot. Over the past 50 years, every single analysis that's ever been done on any TV broadcast anywhere in the world of a bad shot has only looked at the second phase. Mm-hmm. They've only looked at, at what... So that the expert knows that the ball's gone left, And they play a video and then they make up a story as to why that ball has gone left because he's dropped it on the inside or whatever. There's no account for what happened in the pre-shot or more importantly probably the post-shot of a previous shot. You know, we need to look at those three areas and the ironic thing is the only two that you'll ever control 100% if you choose to is the first bit and the third bit. The second bit, the middle bit, will always come and go a little bit. Again, the brain won't wire a golf swing conformity. We're always going to be improvisers by nature slightly. So the middle bit will always come and go. But the first bit and the third bit you can be really, really good at. And and guess what? If you're really, really good at the first and the third bit, you're giving yourself the absolute best chance in the middle bit. Yeah, and the third bit's really critical. I I Yeah, completely. If you're in a stressful environment and t- and tournament golf certainly can be that. If you're not playing well and you don't have control of that Post, post-shot routine, so things like, you know, anger and frustration, they'll, they'll come up. But if you dwell on them, it's almost mm-hmm. like the sensations, are, your brain just goes into meltdown, you feel terrible, it's almost like nothing you can do to pull yourself out of it unless you address that right in the minute. My, my thoughts on that are that, that what happens is that you, if, if you have no understanding of what you need to do in your post-shot, your, your post-shot on the last shot will contaminate the pre-shot on the next shot. Now, if, you, if your post-shot is good and you're aware of how you need to deal with 
poor outcomes or unwanted outcomes. If you can do that, then you come to the next shot and you're able to have the opportunity then to put your attention, we're back in that to that one, attention in the right place for that shot, that unique shot in this moment in time. Mm. You know, golf instruction has done us a disservice because it's only focused on the middle bit, really, in the last, in the last 50, 60 years, and TV kind of reinforces that all the time for people, that if I, if I, if I hit a bad shot, it must be because my golf swing suddenly changed. The margins for error in our game are pretty tight. Pretty tight. And, pretty there's, tight. and there's so much that you actually can't pick up on the video. Yeah. Mm. Well, you, you know, you can't, you can't pick up on the video and increase intention because of a poor reaction to the last shot. Absolutely. Carl, I, I, I want to again talk about the, um, the CDs and the products that you put out because, you know, you've been so generous in putting all of these things together and making them available for uh, not just for other golfers but also for coaches like me. And, you know, I've gained a lot from, you know, listening to CDs and then on the occasional time that you do happen to uh, come to Australia to, uh, to visit and listen to you, which I really appreciate. So for the listeners, you know, go to themindfactor.com and... On the page that you'll be viewing this from, there's a link. So you can click that link and you can go straight to Carl's site and have a look at those things. Um, Carl, I'm looking forward to the book when it comes out. Have you got a name for it yet? The title is yet is, is a work in progress piece. I've actually written the book, but I'm just moving over the title. So uh, hopefully that will be done in the next week or so. Well, that's fantastic. We'll look forward to it when it does come out. Carl, thank you very much for your time and for My the for the words as well. Thank you, Peter. Thanks very much.